So we are there the next morning. We don't know where my son is, where my 20-month-old son David is. He's calling social services. I start calling lawyers. I had to call about 10 different lawyers until I finally got one who had worked with CPS before and knew what the heck was going on. So I go to his office that afternoon, and I'm still, you know, in disbelief. I'm like, there must be some miscommunication somewhere, you know, some incompetent worker or something. So I go see him. I'm like, where's my son, and where do I go get him? And he says, sit down. You have no idea what you're Meanwhile, you have a, you don't know if your other child is going to survive. <laughs> yeah. So I get to his office. He's like, you have no idea what you're in for. I'm like, what are you talking about? They can't just come take my kid. I'm like, yeah, they can. I'm like, what What happened to our Constitution? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? What about the nanny? And he says, they may investigate or they may not. This is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. Welcome to the Close Quarter Dad podcast. Discussions about raising your kids with confidence, safety, and resilience. I'm your host, Adam Mitchell, and I hope you enjoy this episode. All right, everyone. Thank you for joining us again on this next episode of Close Quarter Dad. Today's a special guest, Rachel Bruno, and her story is like none other that you've heard, I promise. Um, it's going to scare you. It's going to give you some concerns. It's going to introduce you to some new dimensions of keeping your children safe, keeping your family safe, keeping yourself safe. And I might even say, after learning more about her story, keeping your future from assets to mindset to the psychology of this, you're going to hear about the sort of the traumatic situation that she went through uh, with her son. And then she's also going to take us through a number of steps that um, she has uh, put together based on her experience. They're going to help us uh, to be able to identify these problems before they evolve, what to look out for, um, and then also how to communicate with our children about this. Now, her bio is is really interesting, but it gets extremely interesting. Um, she's a wife, mother of two young boys. She has a bachelor's degree in communication uh, and an MBA from Pepperdine University. Uh, and when she was getting into becoming an entrepreneur, and Rachel, correct me if I'm wrong, your, your life completely shifted, completely shifted. And uh, I'm going to let her get into that story because I don't even want to, I don't even want to touch it. But what I do want to do is, uh, before we go any further, I want to invite all the listeners to her work and her new book, uh, Fractured Hope, A Mother's Fight for Justice. Rachel, welcome to Close Quarter Dad. Thank you so much yeah. for having me on. So let's, let's get started. I'd like you to share with us how your story began and then kind of pivot into what happened and, and what got you to where your story really begins. So let's let's lead up to that. Okay, well, as you said, you know, starting entrepreneurship, my husband and I founded our own business in cybersecurity. He would take care of the techie stuff, I would take care of the business stuff. And in our minds, you know, we were doing everything right. You know, we got married, waited to be financially stable, started the business, now let's start a family. Right? So I started, I had my first son and it's stressful, right? Being an entrepreneur and having a child. But me being an only child, I knew that I wanted to have more than one. So went on to the second one. And by the second one, my mom is like, I'm too old for this, right? To help me with the night shifts and to help me with taking care of the babies. So they gave me money. My mother-in-law and my mom put their money together and gave me money for a nanny. 
And I said, oh my gosh, you guys are the best moms ever. <laughs> so my husband and I went out searching for a nanny to take care of my sons at mm. the night shift. You know, and a little background on myself. I have seizures. Okay. I have epilepsy. And one of the main triggers is sleep deprivation sure. or interrupted sleep. So we got the nanny taking care of my son when he was seven days old. And no red flags. You know, we interviewed her. She was good. She had kids of her own. Her husband was in the Marines. Everything seemed good. And when he was seven weeks old, I woke up to him screaming at about four o'clock in the morning. So I figured, okay, diaper change, feeding, you know, something like that. He started screaming, then he stopped. Then a few minutes go by, then he starts screaming again, then he stopped again. This goes on for about 30 minutes until I finally get up. You know, I go to his bedroom. She has him swaddled inside the crib. And on his back, tummy side up, she's kind of, you know, wiggling him with her hand, shushing him, trying to get him to calm down. And he was not having it. And so she picks him up, puts him like on a burp position on her shoulder. And in this position, he stops screaming. You know, he just looks really uncomfortable, but he's not screaming. So I ask her, you know, anything happen? And she shows me the empty bottle. And she said, I just fed him. He's really gassy. So he's seven weeks old. You know, newborns, sure. they get gassy. Yeah. They cry. So I'm like, okay, you know, fair enough. And I figured, you know, he's not settling down. Mm -hmm. I'm already awake. So why don't you just go home and I'll take it from here. I unswaddled him, looked for any rashes, looked for anything leaking, you know, anything that we can think of when looking at things for a newborn baby. Couldn't find anything, gave him skin to skin, and he fell asleep on me. I'm like, okay, you just wanted your mommy. So a few hours go by, I wake up to him screaming again. When I look at the clock, it's now 7 o'clock in the morning. I'm like, okay, last feeding 4 o'clock, 7 o'clock, you're hungry. I tried to nurse him. I was exclusively breastfeeding at this point, and he would not have it. You know, never had any issues before, so kind of yeah. weird, but she had me jaded thinking, you know, colic, nursing strike, gassiness. I'm like, okay, maybe you just don't want it right now. Six hours later, nonstop crying. I could not put him down. He would not eat. He would not sleep. I mean, I don't know what was wrong with this kid. And I'm home alone. My husband is out of town on a business trip. I have my 20-month-old son with me bouncing off the walls. And I call my mom. I'm like, mom, can you please come over here to watch my older son, David, who's 20 months old, so that I could take Lucas, my seven-month-old. So you have a 20-month-old and a seven-month-old that you're managing. Your husband's away. I'm sorry, seven, seven weeks. weeks. Yeah, you said that. My apologies. A seven-week-old, mm -hmm. a 20-month-old. You're by yourself, and okay. So I'm just trying to set the scene here. That's yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so my mom comes over. I immediately mm -hmm. give her the baby, and she does the same thing that I did. You no, know, unswaddles him, undresses him, looking for anything. I get on the phone with the doctor. And the receptionist said she wouldn't be able to see him until 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I said, he's been screaming since 4 o'clock in the morning. He's not eating. I need to see somebody. And she said, okay, then take him to the emergency room. So I look at my mom, and she looks at me. She says, Rachel, I don't know what's wrong with him, but he looks like he's in a lot of pain. Okay. So, you know, we get in the car, everybody, all four of us. And as we know, babies love to sleep in the car. So as soon as that car starts moving, no more crying, no more screaming. He's just asleep in the car. And I'm like, great, overreactive mom going That's to right, the emergency yeah. room. <laughs> <laughs> so I get there. I tell them the symptoms. They do see me right away. All his vital signs yeah. seem fine. No heart rate, no fever, no leakage, no, no nothing going on. But the pediatrician, right, the ER doctor, tells me to lay him down, ask me what the symptoms are. I told him. And then he walks away. And I'm thinking, okay, probably going to tell me to give him Benadryl and go home. 
But he stops about 10 feet away at the door and he is just staring at my son, like laser focused on my son. There's about five people in there, everybody's quiet. I'm like, okay, this is weird. And he's just looking and he stands there for about 30 seconds and then he starts walking towards the bed and he goes right behind my son's ear, his left ear. And he touches it, he's like, did you feel this? I said, no. So he grabs my two fingers, he puts it there, like, do you feel that bulge? I'm like, yeah. So that's fluid that's leaking from his brain. I'm like, okay, what does that mean? Like, it could be spinal cerebral fluid, it can be blood. We need to go do a CT scan right now, see what's going on. And as soon as he says that, about 10 people rush into that room and they start putting probes all over the baby, things on his head, they lift up those rails and they oh bolt God. to that wow. CT room. And I'm just, you know, I'm holding him. And as I'm holding him, his right arm starts twitching. And when that happens, those nurses really start running. And I look at the nurse, I'm like, is this normal? She's like, no. And then I remember, I'm like, oh my gosh, left side of the brain, right, right arm twitching, he's having a seizure. And first thing that comes to my mind, oh my God, I gave it to him. All right, it's genetic. I said a little prayer right there. I'm like, Lord, please spare my son from having to yeah. live with this like I did. So we get there. Doctors tell me to go wait in the waiting room. I'm texting my husband out of state, doesn't know what the heck is going on. I'm there with my mom. I'm like, what the heck just happened? Right, we went from gassy baby to now my son is in some life-threatening emergency. The results come back. Doctors take him to the room and he tells me, Ms. Reno, this is very serious. Okay. Like the images show that it was a cranial fracture and the fluid that's leaking is blood. The brain hates blood. We need to go do emergency surgery right now, see if we can fix the fracture and drain the blood. I'm like, okay, so giving me all the liabilities, are you against blood transfusions? Are you again? I'm like, I don't care what you have to do to save my son, save my son. So off they go, wheeling my seven week old baby into the emergency operating room. And I'm just in shock. Like, what the heck just happened? Right? I went from gassy baby to now my son is in brain surgery. And I'm just there with my mom, my 20-month-old son, again, bouncing off the walls like nothing's happening. Four hours go by. Surgeon comes back. And Ms. Bruno, surgery went well. Everything was clinically done. You know, we were able to fix the fracture. We were able to drain the blood. I'm like, is he okay? Is he going to be brain damaged? And he says, we really don't know. Due to his young age, he is in a medically induced mm. coma right now. He was having about 15 seizures an hour, probably due to the irritation of the blood coming into contact with the brain. So we don't even know if he's going to survive the next 48 hours. Like, okay. So you know, he's trying to console me. He's stable. Closely monitor him. We can take you up to the PICU. And I just see a seemingly lifeless baby as I walk into that room. He has gauze wrapped all around his head tubes coming out of every orifice you can imagine and the beeping machines yeah. you know if you've ever been yep. in those rooms they're very yep. sterile and yep. cold yep. <laughs> and i just touched that baby's hand and i said god i don't care if i have to dedicate the rest of my life to taking care of my son i will just don't take him away from me so i go into logistics mode at that point i you know where's my mom going to spend the night where's my son going to spend the night my husband is on his way from the airport straight to the hospital Get my friend to take my mom and my son, go sleep over at grandma's house. My husband is coming straight from the airport to the hospital. And while I'm doing this, I know everybody leaves, everybody's taken care of. I see a man in a uniform and a lady with a clipboard slide that glass door open. 
Say, Miss Bruno, can we speak to you? How many hours would you say this is, Rachel, from the time that you were told that your son has may have forty well forty eight hours with coma yeah. induced <laughs> you know, brains? Like now they yeah. what? How, how many hours was this? So by the time the police officers and the social workers get there, it's about okay. eight p.m. So this all started at four a.m. Got it. So the surgery was done probably at around 4 okay. p.m. So it had been about four hours since all this was going on, right? And I'm waiting there for my husband to arrive. So they slide the door open. Can we speak to you? I thought it was strange, right? What is a police officer and who is this woman? Didn't identify herself. But I'm like, okay, sure. And first things out of his mouth is, Miss Brenna, what happened to your son was worse than getting struck in the head by a bullet. I'm like, okay. Like, will you help us? We want to help you figure out how this happened to your son. So in my head, I'm thinking, okay, you're asking me for help. You obviously don't think I did this, right? You're going to go after the nanny. So I sit down with them, tell them the whole saga from 4 o'clock in the morning. And he's just very casually, you know, leaning against the wall. Like, why did it take you so long to bring him to the hospital? Because I didn't know what was wrong with him. And she told me he was gassy. Like, okay. Why didn't you call 911? Like, again, I thought he was gassy. Why did you bring him to hospital in Orange County when you live in LA County? Because this is the children's hospital that I know. He's just jotting things down. Where's your husband? On a business trip? Where did he go? You know, just making all these questions. I'm answering. I'm cooperating. Social worker asked me, do you have any other children? Like, I do. What are their ages? Where are they? I tell her. Like, is it okay if we go by and see him? So again, in my head, I'm like, what does my son have to do with this? But I have nothing to hide, right? That's usually what go. people think. Yeah. Let's cooperate. Yeah. So I tell her, yeah, he's at my mom's house. He's if probably asleep by now. haven't done anything wrong, what have you got to hide? Yeah. Yeah. So she says, we're not going to wake him. We just want to make sure he's okay. So I say, okay. And she leaves at that point. So this time it's around 930 at night. She leaves and the police officer stays with me. And he says, will you wait for the detectives? The detectives would like to speak to you as well. They're on their way. I'm like, okay. So I wait for the detectives. My husband shows up at about 1030. And he immediately takes my husband to another room. Tells me to go to another room, closes the door to wait for the detectives. So in hindsight, we can kind of see what's going on. But at that point, I had no clue, no idea. And why should you, on. right? So, yeah. Right. So they ask my husband all the questions. The detectives show up at about midnight. So mind you, I've been up since four o'clock. It's now midnight. They explicitly tell me, you know, we just want to let you know, this is not an interrogation. This is an interview, just a conversation. So again, you know, immediately put my guard down. Like, okay, we're here to help you. We want to know what happened, how this happened to your son. So they interview me till about two o'clock in the morning. And I tell them, you know, I really need to go to sleep. I've been up since four o'clock. The previous day, it's now two o'clock. We can continue this when I wake up. They were very nice to me, gave me their business cards. Okay, call us when you can. Go to sleep, wake up 10 o'clock in the morning, and my husband is just staring at me. And my first instinct is to look at the baby, like he's, he's alive, he's okay, what's going on? And my husband tells me they took David. Now, yeah. David is my 20-month-old son who was sleeping at my mom's house. I'm like, what do you mean they took David? Who? Where? They lied to me. And he said, we don't know where he is. They won't answer who's their the, phones. Who's they? 
they Who's showed that? up at your mom's house. Hmm. Social services and law enforcement showed up at my mom's house at two o'clock in the morning with three police cars and the social worker knocked on the door, looked at my son, opened the refrigerator, you know, did the walk through the house. And the social worker tells my mom, you know, everything seems fine. Undressed my son. There are no signs of abuse, but we're going to take him. And my mom is like, no, you're not. And she says, if you don't give him to us, you're going to get arrested. Now, mind you, there's a bunch of cops in this house and they don't say one word. And my mom is like, okay, if I go to jail, do I take him with me? And she says, no, he's going to go to foster care and you're not going to be able to care for him because you're going to have a criminal record. And I'm assuming your mom doesn't have a criminal record prior. And I'm assuming there was no, no imminent threat in the household. There was nothing that would signal, uh, you know, a, a high risk situation or, a, 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 you know, a dangerous situation, eminent right. danger imminent for your danger. child. Yep. Uh, and yeah. was your mother a, a I mean, she, obviously she's a viable guardian of the child. Should your husband and your something yep. happen to the both of you? This right. is this is crazy. But I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. Yeah. I'm just trying to really get some context here. But keep, keep, yeah, no, keep absolutely. going. Keep it going. is crazy. And again, like we don't know, we don't know what was going on, right? We don't know our rights at this point. I mean, they don't yeah. tell us anything. And under the threat of being arrested, and then if I do get arrested, then my son is going to go to strangers as opposed to being with me. So noticing all the commotion, all the chaos, my mom gives the social worker, gives my son the social worker, or my son to the social worker. And he won't get in the car. Of course, he's kicking and screaming. My mom has to buckle him in. And they drive off in the middle of the night, not telling us where they're going, what is going on or anything. Gives my mom a business card, call us in the morning. So here we are, my husband and I at the hospital trying to call them. They won't answer the phone. Rachel, did you hear about this from your mom or did they tell you, just so you know, we are sending social workers and law enforcement mm -hmm. over to your mother's residence and this is happening or did your mom contact you and say, hey, uh, this just happened? Yeah, no, I was sleeping. Oh, I'm sorry. Right? Yeah, I went husband. to bed at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah, so my husband, my husband was on the phone with social services at this point at 2 o'clock in the morning. And he's on the phone crying. You know, he's saying, you do not have permission to do this. You cannot do this. And they're like, we're sorry, sir. We, we, we have to, you know, based on the injury to the infant, which was right, yeah. my baby. It puts the sibling at risk for what happened to the infant. The sibling is also at risk. So again, with no proof whatsoever, right, that I had done this. And another little legal loophole, you know, my husband wasn't even in right. town when this happened. Right. So he, he wasn't even there. Why would they not give the children to the father? That's a great question. I didn't think right? of that. If they yeah, did feel yeah, that there yeah. was a threat. Right. So, but my husband is there. He's noticing all the commotion. He's on the phone with my mom. I mean, everybody is just chaos, right? Nobody knows what to do. Let me just ask you this, and, and, I, and I, it, I'm not, I don't mean to get too personal here, and you don't have to answer this question, but I'm just going to go out on a limb and assume that your husband and yourself have no prior history with this type of action towards a child. There's, there would be no reason for concern based on uh, you know, having the police having history with your family. or Is, is there anything in that background yeah. there that might make them say uh, nothing? nothing? Okay, go ahead. Nothing, which is exactly, you know, my husband, when I was texting him, and I told him, you know, the police officers are here, they want to talk to me. And my husband's yeah, like, yeah, course. you know, cooperate. 
you know, we have nothing, okay. nothing to hide. So we are there the next morning. We don't know where my son is, where my 20-month-old son David is. He's calling social services. I start calling lawyers. I had to call about 10 different lawyers until I finally got one who had worked with CPS before and knew what the heck was going on. So I go to his office that afternoon, and I'm still, you know, in disbelief. I'm like, there must be some miscommunication somewhere, you know, some incompetent worker or something. So I go see him. I'm like, where's my son, and where do I go get him? And he says, sit down. You have no idea what you're Meanwhile, you Meanwhile, you don't know if your other child is going to survive. Right. <laughs> yeah. So I get to his office. Like, you have no idea what you're in for. I'm like, what are you talking about? They can't just come take my kid. Like, yeah, they can. Like, what what happened to our Constitution? What happened to innocent until proven guilty? What about the nanny? And he says, they may investigate or they may not. This is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. They don't follow, family court doesn't follow constitutional law. Is that a quote from your attorney? So yeah. uh, this gets really... I'm getting a little emotional just hearing the story, you know, having four children myself um, and living yeah. in New York, uh, not, not going there. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> well, okay. California, so. <laughs> so we okay. have, we have, <laughs> um, yes. so is this, is this a, when you say they, you keep referencing they, I'm assuming social services, child protective services, but, but, uh, Let's go one rung up on the chain of command here. Who's mm-hmm. above that? Who's that? Who's really they? It all falls under the Department of Health okay. and Human Services. And, you know, later in the book, I kind of get into the rabbit hole of this whole okay. system. Yeah, I don't want to get ahead here. I'm sorry, but I'm just trying to understand here. Yeah. As you're talking this through, like, all right, who's, who's pulling the levers and pushing the buttons? Yeah. All right, but keep going, Rachel. Yeah. I mean, it does come from the top down, but the social workers get bonuses for removing oh, children. Okay. All right. Let's get to that. So let's, let's pick it up where you left off. All right. Now I'm taking some notes here. I'm taking some notes. Yeah. Yeah. So I get to the attorney, right. And he says, this is family court. They don't follow constitutional law. And I'm like, what other law is there? And he says, well, they can do whatever they deem is in the best interest right. of the child. Again, another quote, the best interest of the child. That's their favorite saying. And I'm like, how is it in the best interest of my son to pick him up at two o'clock in the morning and take him to the middle of nowhere without me knowing where the heck he is? Yeah. And he, he just, my lawyer, you know, he's a bully, big Italian mafia guy looks like the Godfather. (laughs) And he says, listen to me, what happened to your son is criminal to my infant son. You are facing 15 years in jail and a hundred thousand dollar bail if they decide to charge you. They are not giving you your children back. If I go into that courtroom and I tell the judge to give the kids back to you, social services is going to pull up this report, the criminal investigation, and they're going to say, your honor, mother is undergoing a criminal investigation. You are placing these children at risk by giving them back to their mother. You don't know if your seven week is going to survive. Your 20 month old was just taken from you. And now we're stacking here uh, 15 years in jail, criminal charges and okay keep going Rachel yeah yeah so I'm yeah exactly so just stacking all this stuff up I'm listening to my attorney I'm like what what (laughs) and he's like your saving grace is that your husband was out of town Mm. when this happened 
So legally speaking, he wasn't at the crime scene. We are going to ask the judge to give sole custody okay. to your husband. That way they don't even risk going into foster care. Because if they go into foster care, they are under two years old and nonverbal. They can be legally adopted by the foster family if the case lasts longer than six months. Which it's going to. Yeah, of And course. they will make it last longer than six months. So just like you said, I'm like, what? Like, okay, I'm criminal charges, jail, adoption. Like, what, what the heck is going on? What country am I living in? So I'm like, okay, you know, what other choice do I have? He's like, that's your best bet. You know, if the judge grants this, the children will be with their father, but they're going to kick you out of the house. <laughs> so I'm like, okay, you know, what, what, what choice do I have? Go into that courtroom and fight for my supposed rights, which I just told that I, they don't exist, right? And having my children's placed with strangers and possibly adopted or having them with their father, who I know loves them and will take care of them. You know, I don't care what you do to me, leave my children alone. So 72 hours later is when we have the emergency hearing. That's what they call the emergency hearing 72 hours later. And we go into that courtroom and I'm thinking it's going to be at least like Judge Judy. Right. You talk, you yeah. talk, what happened, what happened. I get into that courtroom. The nanny's not there. The social worker's not there. The detectives aren't there. The police officers aren't there. The only person on trial in that room is me. And I'm waiting for the judge to ask me, you know, what happened? And a few minutes go by. Next thing I hear, my name is Bruno. Any objections? I'm like, what? Like, any objections to the children going with their father? I said, no. Mr. Bruno, any objections? No. Okay. Ms. Bruno, children will go to their father. You have 24 hours to vacate your home. You are court ordered to take child abuse classes, parenting classes, and individual counseling. A caseworker will be contacting you regarding visitation. And now you're homeless. <laughs> now I'm homeless. <laughs> okay. Right. So, I mean, can it's crazy, right? Can you imagine? For everybody who's <laughs> listening to this and you're saying to yourself, you had a bad day today, keep listening. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So within 72 hours, both my children became wards of the state. I was kicked out of my house. I was now under criminal investigation and I was court ordered to take all these quote unquote services in order to mm. prove my innocence, I guess, to get my children back. So I asked my lawyer, where the heck am I supposed to go now? He's like, well, as long as your son is in the hospital, you can sleep there. It's a monitored facility. So that's where I went. I slept in the hospital for about two days to where people at my church, specifically my husband, my pastor's wife, came to the church, came to the hospital, prayed for me, and she said, you're coming home with me. So I spent 40 days and 40 nights. I was kicked out of the house for 40 days and 40 nights. I had seven hours a week of monitored visitation with both my sons and taking those child abuse classes, polygraphs, psychiatric evaluations. I mean, you name it, everything. And yet nothing was ever presented to the judge to, you know, show exculpatory evidence. They, nothing. Right. And whatever the social worker said goes, whatever their mm -hmm. counsel said goes, whatever the doctors at the hospital Right. The doctors are mandated reporters, which, you know, the diagnosis my son received was not incorrect. You know, it's fine. She should have reported it. But 
the investigation side. Like, what happened to the nanny? Why did they never investigate the nanny? What What did happen? It's that's kind of the to... question I'm thinking. I'm sure everybody's thinking, like, where'd she? Where's yeah. the villain in this story? Is it her? Like, what, what's going on here? Right. So the diagnosis that the child abuse pediatrician at the hospital gave us was non-accidental blunt force trauma. Non-accidental. Okay. Right. But in speaking with attorneys, private investigator, I had to hire a private investigator who has been dealing with CPS and social services, domestic violence, you know, family court, all those cases. And he says they can't say that, right? I mean, she wasn't there. She doesn't know whether it was non-accidental or accidental, like the impact of a child's head hitting the floor versus you banging their head against the wall. Like the impact could be the same. So there's really no way to prove that. But the court takes her word as, as law, right? What she says, it is what it is. So we got a private investigator. He went to go see if he could find any red flags on the nanny. And no real red flags, except he found out she was married to a police officer. Uh. (laughs) And that his brother was also a police Mm. officer. And they worked in neighboring counties where we were. And my private investigator, being a retired FBI and other three-letter agencies, he told me, he's like, this is code blue. They're, they're not going to go after her. I'm like, are you serious? I'm here facing jail, losing my children. I mean, losing everything, and they're not going to go after her. Like, nope, they're not. So in the court reports, you know, they are required to at least give something. They did go speak to her once after they had already seized my children. And when they went to her house, her one-year-old daughter had a bruise under her eye. Just documented in there. Social worker asked her, why does your daughter have a bruise under her eye? Because she fell off the bed when she was sleeping. So when we questioned the social workers, like, well, she had a plausible explanation for what happened to her child, whereas you didn't. And I said, I was sleeping. I wasn't with him. I don't know what happened. And she's like, well... Somebody knows. Nobody's coming forward with the truth. I'm like, okay, why do you automatically assume it's me? And, you know, they won't answer these questions. Of course they won't answer these questions. So, yeah, I mean, I had to keep taking, and the child abuse class, that was really interesting. Like, I thought I was going to be in there with a bunch of drug addicts, alcoholics, you know, tattooed, pierced up people. (laughs) And when I get there, everybody's in the same boat that I was. Nobody had intentionally abused their child. There were playground accidents, right? Dislocated bones. There were bathtub accidents, slip, fall, broken bones, child abuse. There was a father, a stepfather in there who his 15-year-old stepdaughter was posting naked pictures of herself on Instagram. And he noted on the comments, all the men asking for a bunch of sexual favors from his 15-year-old daughter. He grounded her, took away the phone, took away the car. He noted everything he possibly could. One day in his graveyard shift, he's scrolling and he sees his daughter posting naked pictures of herself on her friend's account. So he gets home and he says, I don't know what to do with you anymore. So he spanked her. He spanked her and said, you're not going to do this. So she has her biological father is in jail. She calls her biological father crying, saying that, you know, what happened? And the biological father tells her, you want to get rid of him? call the police and tell them that he hit you. So that's what she did. 
Next thing, the police show up. This stepfather who's trying to protect his daughter gets arrested. The other four children that are all under eight years old all get taken and placed in foster care, separated and placed in foster care. This father spends 10 days in jail. Then he gets out and he's in this child abuse class with me trying to get his other four children back. So I'm listening to all these stories and I'm like, why? Like, what the heck is going on in this? What? Why? This does not make sense. And the old saying, when nothing makes sense, follow the money. Okay. <laughs> and when my son was taken, right, they took him to the county children's shelter. That's where we found him. He was at the county children's shelter. He spent two days there. And they eventually released him to my mom because my mom was a public school teacher mandated reporter, fingerprinted. And when they gave him to her, before I even had a hearing, they asked my mom, will you adopt your two grandchildren? My mom's like, no, give them back to their mom to whom they belong. And the social worker hands her two checks, $680 each. She's like, if you adopt them, you will get $680 a month per child. They will qualify for food stamps. They qualify for WIC. They qualify for, you know, all the social welfare benefits we have in California. And my mom's like, I don't want your money. And the social worker tells her, well, this is how we help What's the, the advantage here, though? What's the advantage for them to do that? The state yeah, gets federal thanks. funding. And it's called the Adoptions and Safe Families Act, which was signed into law by Bill Clinton in 1997 which basically incentivizes the states to place children in foster care and adopt them out. So while my mom was getting $680 a month, the state is receiving anywhere between $2,000 to $8,000 a month per child per month. Whoa. So they're, so, so they're, so you're suggesting that they're shopping for candidates for this program. Um, Wow. A lot of moving parts to that story. So where did where did we land here, Rachel? So on the 40th day, we had a hearing. And my attorney tells me, you know, the criminal case is still open. Status of your investigation is still open. Don't waste your time. I won't waste mine. I tell my husband, like, I don't care what he says, we're going. So we go to the courthouse. Three hours later, he shows up. Might be able to do something today. Goes into the courtroom comes back with a bunch of papers, like initial this, sign this. Like, I don't even know what I'm signing, what I'm initialing. Just trusting God at this point. Then he comes back with a bunch of papers, about 700 pages. And he says, here's the deal. If you're willing to sign the document the way it's written, there's nothing in here admitting guilt. There's nothing in here saying that you did this. It's just the social worker's narrative, the police investigation, the medical stuff, all the services you've taken. They will let you go home today. So at that point, if they told me to cut my leg off, I would have done it, right? I just wanted to be home with my babies. I signed it. They let me go home. And my attorney told me I've been doing this for 23 years. I have never seen them let anybody go home before trial. Like you definitely have a higher power working for you. And I went home that day. The case remained open for six months where a social worker would come to my house every month and, you know, do the walkthrough through the house see if everything was smooth, going smoothly. And at the end of the six months, it was her recommendation that our case be closed. So close the case. The criminal case remained open for a year until the DA finally dropped it for lack of evidence. 
And I just had a fire up my butt. Like I, I couldn't be quiet Who would? knowing everything yeah. that I'd witnessed. Yeah. yeah. And seeing the, the parents in the child abuse class. I mean, there was about 30 of us. I think three of us got our children back. Everyone else has had the, their children placed in foster care, had their parental rights terminated, had the kids adopted out or had them placed with their abusive exes. I mean, it was crazy. So I contacted another attorney, a civil rights attorney who exclusively sues CPS. And I showed him the case and he said, yeah, I'll take your case. You have a case. So we filed a petition based on violation of the fourth amendment and 14th amendment, which was warrantless search and seizure, right? When they took my son from my mom's house at two o'clock in the morning, they didn't even have a warrant. They didn't have a court order. They didn't have anything. And then the 14th amendment is our right to privacy, right? And to raise our family to without minimal government interference. We found out through the discovery documents that when they took my son to the children's shelter, you know, not only did they take him without a warrant, they gave him 13 vaccinations without our consent. Uh, seriously? <laughs> yes. At once. They forced him through a full skeletal survey, which is basically a picture of every bone in your body. Now remember, 20 months old just ripped away from his house at two o'clock in the morning. And now they're forcing him through a full skeletal survey without his parents there with nobody that he knows there. I mean, they had to tie him down and they gave him an anal. And this is all your, this is all documented. This is all documented. Yep. And they gave him an anal wink test, which is for allegations of sexual abuse when there weren't even any allegations of sexual abuse. Like you can see that they're just digging for anything that they could find to justify their actions. Wow. We got text messages of the social worker with her supervisor the night of the interview before they come and speak to me, right? She te texts her supervisor saying, I'm on my way to the hospital. There's an infant with a fracture was with the nanny per mom. The supervisor replies back, OMG, you think it was the nanny. And the social worker replies back, no, ink mom. So they had already made up their minds before they even spoke to me. So this all comes out in the civil suit, right? When we sue them, I mean, we have, I have 28 hours worth of videos of their depositions where, like you said, they admit there were no exigent circumstances. There was no imminent threat. They knew they had to get a warrant, but they didn't. And I mean, it's just amazing to see their faces and... <laughs> Like the lack, complete lack of empathy that they had. You know, they, they were just sorry they got caught, honestly. <laughs> and the training, the detectives, the police training, like, do you know what the Fourth Amendment is? She couldn't say what the Fourth Amendment was. Do you know what the Fourteenth Amendment is? What is your training as far as warrants are concerned? And, you know, she said, of course, you can't just walk into somebody's house and take things. And she's like, yes, do you know that applies to how that applies to children? you know, or to minors or to child welfare. And they couldn't answer these basic, very basic questions. So it was very scary to witness. But when it was all said and done, we settled with them in December of 2018 for $1.49 million. Now, there's no amount of money, you know, that could ever repay what we went through. But I just wanted a clean slate. I mean, we owed over $250,000 sure. at this point in debt just from the first case, not to this case. We lost our business 
right? We had to shut down our business because we couldn't be traveling, couldn't be doing anything. I mean, our so lives were taken So there was wrongful action us. as far as the courts were concerned on on child protective mm -hmm. services on that whole on that whole side. There was wrongful action. Yeah. Yes. Yep. 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 So we settled and. Then, you know, I said, now what, yeah. right? What am I going to do yeah. <laughs> with this? <laughs> so I decided to write the book and become an advocate. You know, my mission now is to expose, expose the system, the corruption in the system is to educate parents because I had no idea this existed. I'm really sorry all that happened. This is a, uh, it's a moving story that you shared with us and thank you for sharing it. First question that comes to mind, and then I want to step into some benefit of the doubt stuff. The first question that comes mm -hmm. to my mind, and I'm sure a lot of the listeners, is how are your children right now? And how, how are they doing and how are they recovering? Thank God they are perfect. My seven-week-old son who suffered the, the brain injury, he is now six years old. He is in first grade. He's reading. He's writing. He's jumping. He's screaming. Perfectly normal boy. And when he was two years old, he did have to get mm -hmm. reconstructive surgery for the cranial fracture. But aside from that, he does have like a lemon size ball that's encapsulated in fluid. So basically that part of his brain is missing. And the neurosurgeon told me, he's like, if I was looking at this image, strictly at this image, I would be really concerned for this patient. But seeing your son here in live in person, you know, I have no concerns for him. Whatsoever. No, nothing long-term. So nothing long-term. He doesn't have any more seizures. He doesn't. Okay. He's, He's right. fine. You know, he's a miracle. It really is a miracle baby. And my 20 month old at the time is now eight years old. And thank God he also did not suffer any long term effects medically as far as the vaccines were concerned. You know, yeah. They could have killed my son. That's crazy. <laughs> and some trauma still. You know, he still doesn't like to get undressed in front of doctors. When he saw, we went to the airport when he saw a man in a uniform, a police officer, he ran the other way. He would not go through security. So some of those things, but, you know, I've talked it out with him. My husband and I have talked it out with him. And he rejected me for probably about a year, even after I went home. And he's like, I don't want you, Mommy. I don't want to be with you. He always wanted to go back to my mom's house because my mom is the one who rescued him, right, in his mind. And I just had to talk to him. I just had to be open with him, you know, and tell him this wasn't his fault. And it wasn't my decision. It wasn't my choice. You know, it wasn't your dad's choice. It was nobody's choice. When we did this, we just had some really bad apples yeah. in our group. I'd like to uh, step into, kind of pivot here a little bit and step into the benefit of the doubt thing. You know, it, I can't imagine people get into that line of work, whether it's social services or, you know, in, in the courts, law enforcement. I work with a lot of police officers, first responders, have it in my family. My grandfather was a police officer. Um, and in the community of my... I, I'm a professional martial artist. I've got a large school I've been teaching for 25 years. So I interface with these men and women on a regular basis. And I always want to give, uh, you know, you mentioned the, the code blue and how that's sort of this, this shield of protection when it comes to anything that might be criminal. That's at least how I understand it. And I would never want to infer that the men or women that showed up in uniform uh, at, your, at, at your mother's house had bad intention. Uh, e even the social workers came in with bad intention. 
Um, and just like you probably should have been given the benefit of the doubt and due process and, you know, and all of, all of the things that you just shared with us, I'm curious to know, really, I, I, and I'm sure you have your, not just your opinions, but your facts based on the documentation and all the work that you've done. Um, it sounds to me, Rachel, that there's a lot of broken subsystems within an overarching system that we may call social services within the state of California. Um, and as a result of those systems being kind of busted up, the people within those systems have to sort of kind of hold the line to keep things together. That's how it sounds like to me because, you know, I know people in social service are family people as well. People in the courts, they're family in family court. And I've, I, I mean, yeah, we could go down a lot of different rabbit holes with that one because I have a lot of uh, shared feelings with you about that. But at the end of the day, I really struggle with this idea of, you know, whether it's police officers or social workers, knowing in the back of their mind, nah, this isn't, she didn't, this is, this kid's head accidentally hit, hit a bedpost or something, something, this mom didn't do that. You know, when you talk about law enforcement, you're talking about men and women who are exposed to this day in and day out. And the social workers, they deal with this day in and day out. Um, and especially with a lot of the police officers here, they're professional profilers. I mean, they get trained to know what's truth and what's not truth. And to be able to bypass that um, is that's a that's a really tough thing for me, and I'm sure it was for you, to to wrestle with. Um, and I'm wondering wh how you feel about the people in this story, uh, and knowing yeah. them, and be just sitting across the table and and shaking your head like, why are you why are you doing this to me? Or is there is there this this naivete or this ignorance that's that comes because of whether it's they're just they become burnt out by it they become complacent to it they become numb to it what do you feel the personal story is here that's not being told yeah i mean as far like as you said the institution is concerned you know law enforcement and social services in general like you know i have taught my son to respect them Right. And to that they do respect their authority. They're not all bad people. That's what I told him. You know, we just got a few bad apples. You know, they made a bad decision. You know, and in my case specifically, I mean, we we have documents that show them behind the scenes coordinating what they're social service, so, social before services. they ever speak to me wow. with law enforcement, with the detectives. You know, the officer told me to wait for the detectives that they were on their way. And I waited for two hours for them to be on their way. And during those two hours, we have the text messages, exchanges between detectives and social services. And the detectives are the ones who actually told social services wow. to remove the children. So I don't know, like you said, I may just have gotten some bad, bad actors yeah. in this whole situation. Did you ever, did you ever get any, did but, you ever get any personal apologies? Did anybody come up and just be like, Hey Rachel, look, looking back, we were wrong in this case and, uh, you know, we're just really sorry. None of that. No, no. And when the court reports, the police officer, you know, you said they're yeah. profiling, right? They're professional profilers. And I was, I tried to remain calm, right? I wasn't crying. I wasn't hysterical. I was talking to you just like I am right now when I was telling them the story and what happened that night or that morning. And he wrote in the court report that mother is not exhibiting the normal behaviors of a grieving mother, is acting like this is just a normal uh, doctor visit. 
So I'm like, okay. And then in the child abuse class where I met other parents, they would say, you know, they were crying and they were hysterical. And then in their court report, it would say the mother is not emotionally stable to take care of the children. Wow. So you can pitch it however you want, so long as we end up at the same, yes. like the same end means, right? Wow. So Rachel, right. um, just I, I'd like to step into some of the work that you're doing now as a result, if that's okay. And really for the listeners here, mm-hmm. um, you have five main points uh, that you put together. Right. I'd like to, I'd like to go through each one of them uh, and, and, quickly, but I also want to give each one of them the necessary time. But one of the things I'd like to task you with, if it's okay, is if you were having a conversation with a parent or a dad, and he said that, yeah, I'm really concerned about that, what would the advice that you would be, and we're going to go through each one, what would that advice be, and how would you want, uh, if, let's say, if that father was not in a, you know, was not part of this system, whether it be in social services or family court or law enforcement. But if they had no exposure to this at all, how would you coach them to interface with their children about these topics and um, maybe make them cautious or, or just to just generally educate them? I don't know really what I'm looking for in a question. I, I think you know, but the first one, the, the first one's pretty obvious: is no warrant, no entry. Let's step into right. that. Right. So that fateful night, right, where they went to my mom's house at two o'clock in the morning. If they don't have a warrant, then you do not have to let them in your house, period. Right. That applies to law enforcement in general, but that also applies to social services, to the CPS workers, the case workers, whoever they might be. And if they, you know, they will use all the psychological tricks on you that they can right? We just want to talk to your children. Why aren't you cooperating? You know, we just want to do this. We just want to do that. And chances are, if they are asking to speak to you, right, and they're trying to gather information, that is probably like 99% chance that they don't have a warrant. So, yeah, that's the first signal, because if they did have it, they just flash it at you and come in and you know, what can you do? So that's the first thing. Like if I had to go back in time, I would not have spoken to them at that hospital. Right. I would have politely declined and say that I will be more than happy to speak with you once I get an attorney. We've referenced it twice. Well, you've got nothing to hide. If you're not doing anything wrong, you've got nothing to hide. So right. why don't you talk to us? What is inherently wrong right. You know, at the surface level? And I might even say superficially because I know what's underneath this. Uh, it sounds right. Mm-hmm. It, you know, If you've got nothing to hide, then why aren't you helping us? But what is the inherent problem with right. that from your perspective? That they can twist your words, right? They can make your words into anything they want. Like they have no accountability, right? There isn't even a court reporter in that courtroom, right? And if you don't speak, you take away their biggest weapon, which is right. and we're twist talking, your words. Yeah. Just like your Miranda rights, right? Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. <laughs> that is the same thing as far as your parental rights and your individual rights when you So when working with our kids and talking to them about these situations especially if there's a, a, a something that may have happened that could bring this could get a knock on the door maybe with our teenage kids who might be home alone we want to coach them like no matter what if anybody knocks on the door 
you do not talk to them. You just simply say, um, you know, I will call my father and have him get in touch with you. Please leave a business card on outside the door and have a nice day. Is there anything right. else you'd add to that? Exactly. I think that's pretty much it. You know, do not let them in. That is your first, first barrier, first line of protection. Do not let them in. And yeah, don't talk. Yeah. That's it. You know, but again, it doesn't mean they won't yeah. get a warrant. Right. Because I saw a lot of cases where, you know, they do come, they don't have a warrant. Then 24 hours later, they'll come back with a warrant. But it will at least give you time to get your ducks in a row. And once you get CPS, that goes into point number two or to point number three. Well, is the to get point an number two is shut up and shut up now, <laughs> which kind of uh, dovetails right. nicely. Yeah. Last so one, don't right? talk to them. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and you're right. It's imperative that you not submit to a CPS interrogation before talking to you to, before talking to your attorney. Um, and that saying nothing is, if you say nothing to them, you have taken away their greatest weapon, their ability to twist your words, which is, uh, which is where we went from one mm -hmm. to two. So they don't come in. We teach our children that, and one of the things that I, I when, when we talk about um, abduction awareness or loss, loss prevention, is really that no matter what, no matter who they are, one of the, the, one of the number one of six rules when it comes to abduction awareness is you do not go and you do not have those discussions. Even if it's someone who comes over and shows you their identification and their shield, I'm a law enforcement, I'm a, I'm a police officer, My, your dad is so-and-so, he works at so-and-so, and he's able to legitimize everything. I need you to get in the car, he's in the hospital, he's in a car accident, and I came to get you. No matter what, first of all, no police officer is ever going to do that. I get that. That's not standard procedure. But no yeah. matter what, you do not have those conversations. You do not go. You do not let them into the house no matter what. So this is really, this, this rule applies even outside of this discussion, Rachel. I think it's that no matter who shows right. up at your door, leave the business card at, on, uh, outside the door. Have a nice day. I'll make sure my dad calls mm -hmm. you, I'm gonna, you know, within the next hour or so. Click, doors closed, end of story. Right. And not only... Yep. And also with social services, let your children know that if they come to school, they don't have to talk Thank to them you. at school either. That's a wonderful point. Okay. Yeah. If they go to the principal's office and say, somebody's here to talk That's to you, you tell them point. I'm not going to speak yep. without my parents. Um, and, and again, I just maybe want to step into again that we, I don't think that any of us here are trying to demonize social services or child mm -hmm. protective services, family court. Um, because I'm sure that the overwhelming majority of those people are there are very well intended. Um, but there is a bro there is mm -hmm. what you're saying is, is that there is a break in the system. You unfortunately were a significant victim yes. to that break. And this needs to get, this needs to get resolved. Right. Uh, I, I love that point about yeah. in the schools. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, so your number, your third rule is get an experienced attorney. Rachel, you said that you went through 10 before someone would even talk to you. Right. Yeah, because this is a very, very specialized niche within family law, right? It's juvenile dependency. So family law encompasses divorces and custody cases and those kinds of things. But even a divorce lawyer wouldn't know how to deal with CPS. I know, I know, you're, I know you're not an attorney, but you right. have more experience about this than anybody I know. <laughs> and I do know that here in New York, for example, mm -hmm. the Department of Environmental Protection, they don't need certain warrants. They can go in, they can walk into your house. They can do. They have certain um, mm -hmm. overriding rules that they can abide. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna even pretend to be an attorney or right. talk legal here. But I do know a couple things yeah. about that. And in in Cal, first of all, yeah. is this a state by state thing? And secondly, 
does Family Court have some rules that they can play with outside of the constitutional law because it pertains to family or be outside of state law? They kind of have their own rodeo here. Is that what I'm hearing? Yeah. They do. And unfortunately, it's nationwide because the funding is federal. Oh. So the federal government makes the states apply to certain principles in order to get the, the funding. Right. So if the state doesn't do what the federal government tells them to do, then did they you communicate the with your uh, with your representatives at all? Or did you? Yeah. Where'd that go? I have. I have. Nowhere. <laughs> I mean, even now that you're on podcasts and you're they, writing books and I mean, you're 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 getting out oh, there yeah. now, Rachel. I mean, you're making some movements and I applaud yeah. you for that. It would be in their best interest to say, you know, have a Starbucks with you and hear and hear what you have to say. Yeah. Yeah. No, they pass the buck. You know, they're like, this is not under our jurisdiction. This is the jurisdiction of so-and-so, or this is the jurisdiction of so-and-so. They all point the finger to somebody else. So with, with the third rule here, so we have, we have don't let anybody inside. Don't let anybody inside your, inside your book yeah. bag, inside your locker, inside, well, I don't know about the locker, but like in school, yeah. at home, same rules apply. <laughs> Do not let them in. Do not talk to anyone. Shut up. Just keep your mouth shut. Just contact mom or dad, yep. and we'll talk. And then also, we just yep. want to let you know that oftentimes the way the courts work is that we need to have someone represent us in pre-framing our children that we are going to bring an attorney in to yes. represent what mom and dad say will help soften the impact rather right. than sitting them down at some scary office that they've never been to and meeting some Don Corleone looking guy, like you just said, uh, but, but pre-framing them and letting them know that this person, there's someone that you're going to meet that's on our side is, and, and you can say to them anything that, that your, that your children have permission from mom and dad to speak openly and comfortable with this attorney. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. Yes. Let them know. And again, you know, attorneys are expensive. That's not new. But remember, in this scenario, they have your children's lives in their hands, yeah. right? You want somebody who really knows what they're doing. And unfortunately, the public defenders, you know, again, like you said, I'm sure they're good public defenders that became lawyers, that became public defenders because they want to help the public. But they work for the same system, right? Part of that money that the federal government gets to the states is what pays the public defenders, so, you know, they're friends with the judges, they're friends with the social workers. You don't want to get, you know, in a fight yeah. with your coworkers. <laughs> you know, you're living with these people, you're working with these people daily. So the public defenders yeah. are sort of in a catch-22, right? And I'll use an example from one of the people who was in the child abuse class with me who had a public defender. Same charges or accusations as me, where it was a fracture and he was also facing 15 years in jail and $100,000 bail. He was 18 years old, a father at 18 years old. He did not have money, right, to afford a private attorney. So he went with a public defender. And his scenario, he slipped in the bathtub while he was holding, giving his baby, a. she was 10 months old, giving his 10-month-old baby a bath. He went inside the bathtub to pick her up. He slipped. She fell and hit her arm on the side of the bathtub. And she was screaming and crying. He knew what happened. He saw what happened. He took the baby to the emergency room, told the doctors what happened. They did the CT scan, and because there was a fracture in more than one place, there were two fractures, they said it was child abuse. So he's 18 years old, has no clue, right, goes to the public defender, and the public defender tells him, okay, you know, we'll just go to the judge, you tell him you're sorry, 
that you take complete responsibility for what you did. It's not going to happen again. And we will plea for two years instead of 15. Wow. So this kid, 18 years old, did the two years in jail for accidentally dropping his daughter in the bathtub. The children go to foster care. He spends two years in jail. He's now 20 years old, can't find a job because he has a criminal record. And of course, social services is using that against him, telling the judge that he has no way of supporting his children. And he's in this child abuse class with me. It's unacceptable. It's unacceptable. It is. Um, So, you know, an experienced attorney at this point. Worth it. It's worth it. Almost non-negotiable. Yeah. Right. Don't go with the public defender. Do what you can't. So sell your car, mortgage your home, beg your family, whatever you need to do get to get money to pay an attorney. Do whatever you got to do. Yeah, right on. Right. Yes. That's, that's very yes. good advice. Um, the fourth one comes from experience. Swallow, sw- swallow your pride. Yeah. <laughs> because if you don't have the experience, you're going to go in there guns blazing. You know, you're going to come in with a, with a degree of Absolutely. entitlement. You know, you work for me, yep. like all that stuff. But you, yep. like, let's let's talk about that and how we can prepare our kids to swallow your pride because that's going to get you further. Right. Yeah. So, you know, I saw again in that child abuse class, I had a friend, I'm still in touch with her. She had the same caseworker I did, the same judge I did, the same doctor I did, the same attorney I did. And her parental rights were terminated in October of 2018. She lost all six of her children. And when looking at her case and looking at mine, That was probably the biggest thing is that she would fight so much with the social workers, right? Anytime that they would tell her to do the psychiatric evaluation or, you know, go do the polygraph test or go do a urine test, go do a drug test. Even though I'm not a drug addict, I've never done drugs in my life. Is that what they told me to do? Then I'll do it. Right. Even though it's wrong, you know, we know on principle, we want to fight on principle, but these people, some of them can be very vengeful, right? And power trippy. Right. They know they have the power. It's a power trip for some of them. So it is best that you just cooperate. And again, an attorney, a good attorney, he can be the bully for you. Right. Like my attorney was definitely a bully. He told me, I don't want you speaking to law enforcement. I don't want you speaking to the detectives. I don't want you saying anything. Yet they kept calling me and kept leaving voicemails on my cell phone and saying, Miss Bruno, why are you not calling us back? I would think if you were a concerned mother, you would want to cooperate with the investigation. So I'm like, what are you implying, right? That I'm not a concerned mother. Like, you know, you want to get on the yeah, phone yeah, and tell them, give no, them a piece you. of your mind. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah. but I would call my attorney. I'm like, what the heck am I supposed to do? And he, one day he called on three-way. He's like, okay, I'm going to call her right now. You be quiet. Just listen. And I'm like, okay. So he calls, he gets in touch with the detective. Like, yeah, my name is Art Lento. I'm representing Miss Bruno. I heard you want to talk to her. And then the detective is already kind of caught off guard, right? That is an attorney. Like, yeah, I mean, I'm just wondering why she won't talk to us. And I'm like, that's not what she said. She will talk to you under my presence with me being present. Well, why would she need you present? Because that's her right. Uh, Why is she not cooperating? And then he's like, what are you implying? If you start talking, I am going to go to that judge. I'm going to tell them that you are biased that you are going against my client. I mean, he goes off on her mm. and she's just quiet the whole time. And then she finally speaks up. She's like, is Miss Bruno on the line? And then he tells me, Rachel, can you speak? And I said, yes. 
And then she hangs up and never calls wow. me again. <laughs> so one of the things you said in that rule there is um, when you when you can swallow your pride, then you lessen the risk of evidence of guilt, right? Because like what you're right. what you've said all along in this discussion is that your words can get really manipulated and used against you, even the best, even with the best of intentions, yeah. right? They, they, if 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 they have a yeah. specific yeah. outcome, meaning social services, meaning the court, meaning uh, you know the detectives who may be working hand in hand with social services, and they have whether it's a bias, whether it's a chip on their shoulder, whether it's a reason, I don't know. We we don't know. Um, but it can be manipulated. Right. So your best thing is to invest in a good attorney, uh, one that you feel comfortable yeah. with. Make sure your whole family is put on notice of what's going on uh, immediately. I, I, and I might even mm -hmm. say, Rachel, that as soon as you slip in the tub, as soon as something happens mm -hmm. that, or you know, the moment you bring your child to the hospital or, God forbid, or have to call the doctor or something, you right. need to, you, you know... You need to have somebody, have on, somebody call. on call. Gee. Yeah. Um, so the in the yeah. last one is, yeah. I mean, all these are important. I don't think one has hierarchy over the other. I mean, you could list them in any order. Yeah. But uh, document everything and right. admit nothing. And I'm hearing a theme here. I'm hearing this like, yeah. say nothing, do nothing, don't let any, anybody in. Shut up. It all funnels through a, an attorney that you have to invest in, not yeah. a public attorney. No matter what, you do yeah. whatever you can to invest in someone who knows what they're talking about. But you are responsible for documenting phone calls, times, yep. say, like everything. Um, just so you know, we're recording right now. Like you are responsible for documenting mm -hmm. every single thing. Yes, everything. I mean, when I was when I went home, right, the social worker would still come to my house, and she would talk to me. And one thing they kept trying to imply was that mm -hmm. I had postpartum depression, and somehow that is what made me do this to my son so you know they would start talking about you know how's your day um how are you feeling can they do Being that even home? though you don't have a diagnosis it must be I mean, stressful. A doctor that yeah they can just assume that you've yeah. Got, yeah right yeah and my i would tell my attorney that you know she asked me about postpartum and he would go off on me you know it was like you do not talk to these people Okay, you do not talk to these people. They are trying to gather information or trying to twist no. your words, you know, trying to get a diagnosis. And he told me, he's like, nobody here is your friend. The only person here is your friend is me. And that's only because you paid wow. me. <laughs> so, yeah, document everything and share it with your attorney. And, you know, like when I was allowed to go home, before they allowed me to go home, they wanted my seven week old son, who was now three months old to do a second skeletal survey. He'd already done one when he was first admitted into the hospital. They wanted him to do another one. So within a matter of a few weeks, they wanted him to have two x-rays, which is a lot of radiation for a newborn. My pediatrician is like, I'm not going to do it. It's like, I'm a mandated reporter. I see no signs of abuse whatsoever. I see no reason to put this child through another exam. And social services says, I don't care. We're not going to let you go home then. What are you hiding? Why will you not let us do another skeletal survey? So the swallow pride thing comes in, right? Like big picture here, you know, do I want to risk yet again, you know, them putting another thing or this delaying this even longer for me going home? I had to beg my doctor, my pediatrician, 
And, but we documented it in case we did go to trial. The doctor said, my name is so-and-so. I do not agree with this. There is no forms of abuse, blah, 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 blah. Wrote everything down on a letter, gave it to the judge. Social services told the judge that they wouldn't accept it. So we did the, the survey anyway against our will and against our doctor's will. But if we did go to trial eventually, mm. that was documented, right? We could show the jury or show, you know, whoever is in there that it was against the doctor. And we did it under duress. We did it under stress. We did it under, you know, they were blackmailing us basically or coercing us that if we didn't do this, then we weren't going to get our children back. So it's a lot of moving yeah, parts, so as Rachel, you can as we see. Come up to the end of the episode here, I have two th- two questions uh, that we can close up with. The first question is, mm-hmm. I'm really left with a what now? If uh, if your book if your book became a New York Times bestseller and you were sitting on Oprah t- telling your story, <laughs> what is the change that you would want to see here uh, in, in like in, in, in really short context here? Like what is what's the what's the immediate change? What's the immediate impact that you'd like to see happen? Well, I think if we defunded this, 90% of the problems would go away. Like no child should have a bounty on their head, right? The, the social worker's motivation should not be if we don't have enough children in the system, what is the funding this? gets cut, what is then this? we're going to lose our jobs. Defund this. What exactly is that? Defund the foster care, the foster system. care okay. system, basically. Yeah. Like if you want to help a child, if you want to help a family, then you should have the financial yeah. means to do so. Right? Why should you be getting money or from the government in order to do so? Would you consider something... And even according to the government's own standards, 87% of the cases Has are based on Has there ever been neglect. an internal audit of this or a watchdog group that comes in and says, hey, hold on a second, what's going on here? Let's look at this. You know, you got this lady, Rachel, over here, all these stories that we're hearing, like what, what the <laughs> hell's happening? Um, we need to see the flow of money, yeah. what's motivating, like what's, what's the root cause here? And, and would, would you say that that would be a good outcome, at least to start there, is to have some independent watchdog groups or someone come in and really audit this? Yeah. There would okay. be. There would be. I know people yeah. who have tried, but it's a lot of money. It's very hard to get in there. A lot of money. <laughs> um, okay, so the yeah. last question I have for you, Rachel, is uh, if you were to return to the n- day before all of this happened, what is the one thing? And I know there's a number. Uh, there's probably a twelve of them. There's probably a lot of things, right? You've already <laughs> shared with us five. But what is one thing that you feel that you can look back on and say, you know, I'm not going to shit on myself too much, but if I could have fixed one thing there, was it the the process in which you, you know, vetted a nanny? Was it, you know, safety, uh, you know, hardware in the bedroom? Did you like what was what, what could what could a parent do right now to help really put up a firewall from this happening before it happens? Yeah. A nanny cam definitely would have helped, right? Should have had a nanny cam in there, which I didn't. And secondly, I probably just should have taken him to the hospital right away. Right? Within that first hour or so that he wouldn't stop crying, I should have taken him to the hospital. Should have listened to my instincts. Like something is weird here. That's a tough one though, Rachel. You know, as a, you know, I've, I've, I've walked the hallway with a lot of crying kids trying to put him back to sleep at 2 a.m. And, uh, you know, when you've got to be at work the next morning or you had a medical condition like you shared with us, 
uh, your 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 significant others away on a ch- I mean, all the things, right? And you're just like, you know, the kid's gonna fall back right, asleep, right. and yeah, he bumped his head, he's gassy, whatever. I'm gonna lie him right. down on my bare <laughs> chest, and we're gonna. Well, I just got, I need I need an extra right. hour. I need it because it makes all the right. difference in my performance at work tomorrow or what have you. So I think every mm-hmm. parent can really relate to that, and you know. You when you say I, I should have just taken him to the hospital, maybe, yeah, yeah, maybe, but but no, I don't think any of us would have. Not I, I just don't know. I, I maybe when I had my first one and I was like really protective, but by my fourth one, right? <laughs> no way I could totally relate to that. Yeah, yeah they're made so, of Teflon, right? <laughs> right so I really want to thank you as we as we wind this up. I really want to thank you first of all for f- sharing this story with us. It's an emotional story. It is a traumatic story, uh, but there's also a lot of this story that we can relate with, and in and I can feel some, I could feel a little bit of the tension in, you know, having to sort of, uh, uh, sort of give up a lot of what sounded like some of your core values, like you know you trust a system and you trust people to do their job, right. and all of a sudden you find out that that reality is completely different than what you were raised to think or what you think now as a you know a contributing member of the society your your husband's a, a veteran and you you know you're a minor church going people uh, you know you've got all these you know yeah you just don't you're not that that system is for over there it's like we don't do this but now all of a sudden right. <laughs> the game changes and your values have to change at the same time and i think the outcome of all this is uh is really inspiring to watch and how you manage this. And I'd just like to acknowledge you for that. And I'd like to acknowledge the work that you're doing now and helping other parents through your own trauma and through the pain that you had to manage with your children, with your own family, in hopes that um, you can at least prevent this from happening to one or two other mothers like yourself and, and advocating uh, for that and preventing it, uh, you know, and getting that knowledge out there and preventing it from happening, hopefully to one or two other families is what it sounds like to me. And I just really want to honor you for that. And thank you for yes. the time that you put in for it. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to share. You know, like you said, if I can impact just one, two, three families, then yeah, I, and, and I've I'd like to job. loop back with you uh, in here in, in you know a year or so uh, how the system has changed and how your work has impacted uh, the the work of the state. I'd love to know if you end up meeting up with a representative. I'd like to hear what the state, what, what your what your local representative has to say about these situations. Yes. This is really interesting, and I think it should be concerning for a lot of the people who are hopefully listening to this. Uh, and I would really love to hear the um, I'd love to hear the feedback from people in social services, from professionals who are committing their life to this work, to helping children. Um, people who are involved in the courts, people who are involved in law enforcement who deal with this day in and day out, people who work in first response who are the first on the scene with these uh, injured children. Um, I'd love to hear their feedback and, and, and mm-hmm. how your story resonates with them. And I think with that, that type of dialogue, and I hope you'd agree with me, is really what is going to be the change agent to a system that it sounds like to me, it's pretty apparent, needs changing. Yeah. Rachel, thank you so much for this time together. I really appreciate you and I appreciate all the work that you're doing one more time. I want to thank you for spending time with us on this episode today. It's truly appreciated. I hope you got some value from it. If you want to go ahead and leave any comments or questions, reach out to me directly. I personally answer all of the questions that you have. 
If you know someone like yourself who may find value in this episode, then please go ahead and share it. We'd also like to ask you to subscribe to Close Quarter Dad. This way you get updated every time a new episode comes out wherever you're listening to this episode. Thank you so much once again, and we'll see you on the next episode of Close Quarter Dad.